We're going to be in Judges chapter 4 this evening, but as you find that, I also want you to turn to Psalm 106 to begin with tonight, the 106th Psalm. We're in a study of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is not a feel-good book of the Bible. It is a book describing the darkest days of the history of Israel. But there are many things out of these dark days that can encourage us. One is that God is at work even in the darkest days of the history of Israel. And if God is at work in the darkest days of Israel's history, he is also at work in the darkest days of our lives. When our lives are completely a mess and broken and everything, God is at work. And we can be encouraged as we look at those we love and our friends and maybe their lives are a mess, that God is at work even in the darkest days of their life as well. And he wants to make something very beautiful out of that mess. If you've not been here the first couple of weeks of our study of the book of Judges, There is a psalm, and there's a part of this psalm, Psalm 106, that is a great summary of the book of Judges. Psalm 106 is sort of a historical summary of the nation of Israel, but when you get down to Psalm 106, beginning at verse 34, this is sort of where he picks up the timeline from the book of Judges. And here's what he has to say. They, speaking of the nation of Israel did not destroy the nations as the Lord had commanded them to do. They mixed in with the nations and learned their ways. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted by bloodshed. They were defiled by their deeds and unfaithful in their actions. So the Lord was angry with his people and despised the people who belonged to him. He handed them over to the nations and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them. They were subject to their authority. Many times he delivered them, but they had a rebellious attitude and degraded themselves by their sin. Yet he took notice of their distress when he heard their cry for help. He remembered his covenant with them and relented because of his great loyal love. He caused all their conquerors to have pity on them. It's a pretty good summary of the entire book of Judges. I want to direct your attention back, though, to begin with tonight, before we jump back to Judges chapter 4, to a phrase at the end of verse 43. They degraded themselves by their sin. One of the reasons why God hates sin and wants to give us the power to overcome sin in our lives is because one of the properties of sin is that sin degrades us. It it causes us to be less than what God intended for us to be. It causes our life to be less than what God intended for our life to look like. That's why God is so aggressive with sin. That's why God will do what he can do to try to wrench sin out of our lives and give us the power over sin so that sin, as Paul says in Romans 6, has no more mastery over us so that we will not be degraded and live lower than God intended, but that we will truly experience the abundant life 
that John 10 talks about that Jesus Christ came to give us. With that said, when you go back then to Judges chapter 4, we pick up again the story and we once again see this power of sin in the nation of Israel. We see this cycle that continues to be repeated where the Bible says in Judges chapter 4 verse 1 that the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight after Ehud's death. Therefore the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Canaan who ruled in Hazor. The general of his army was Sisera who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. The Israelites cried out for help to the Lord because Sisera had 900 chariots with ironed rim wheels and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Just briefly again, let's go back to last week. We, we looked through the book of Judges at really how God works in history, in miniature. That, that God gives responsibility and privilege to people, stewardship, into their hands. If they can handle it, then he gives them more. If they rebel and they're disobedient and and they prove untrustworthy and they get too big for their britches and they're raised up in pride and they forget God and, and they forget the ways of God and the word of God and they turn their back on God, then God will raise up someone to humble them, not to defeat them, ultimately not to destroy them, but hopefully to wrench the idols, if, if you will, out of their hands to cause something to come into their life where they're willing to give up the sin that is degrading them and pulling them down and turn back to God. And so we see here once again the power of sin theme in the book of Judges where it says, again, they did evil in the Lord's sight. As I've said before in the mind, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. And, and one of the things about sin is its power is that, that maybe we can reform for a while and maybe through our own strength, if you will, we can raise ourselves up by our own bootstraps and beat it for a while, but it's never a permanent fix. It's always temporary. We will always, if we are not operating with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives, when times get tough and, and the stress of life comes on us and, and the circumstances of life aren't what you know, we want them to be, we will revert back and default back to those things that we know best. And that's exactly where the nation of Israel was at. They were not operating with the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They were not putting the Lord first in their lives. And, and, and they were reverting back in this cycle. And, and, and God doesn't want us to live through that cycle where we can beat something for a while, we can get on top of it, and then a few weeks later, a few months later, a few years later, it comes back and it grabs us, and sometimes it grabs us even harder than it did before, and sometimes it takes us down even further than it did before. And God does not want to see His children live that way. God wants to see His children, through His power, break that cycle and be able to move past that cycle. It's not that we're never going to have any struggles or, or things that, that uh, are opposed to our walk with God, but that we're not going to continue to go back and do the same old things and get caught up in that same old pattern that we have before. That's part of why Jesus came, so that he could release us from that. And we see that even in the book of Judges. Something else we see here that I want to talk about tonight is this. We also see in verse 1 the, what I call the pressurized 
spirituality of Israel. What, I, what do I mean by that? Well, again, a pattern exists in the book of Judges, and you see it here in Judges 4.1, where you take away the external restraint, Ehud, and Israel displays her true character. Because the Bible simply says, after Ehud's death, then they went back and reverted back to their old ways. We've seen this pattern in Judges. Way back in Judges chapter 1, we saw where as long as Joshua was alive, the people of Israel followed the Lord and did what was right. And as soon as Joshua passed off the scene, as soon as that external restraint or that pressure being exerted on them from outside was taken away, they went right back to their old ways of doing things. Then came Othniel that God raised up. And after he departed, they went right back to their old ways. Then God raised up Ehud that we talked about last week. And after Ehud passed, they went back to their old ways. Then he rose up Shamgar. And after Shamgar uh, passed off the scene, they went back to their old ways. And that's exactly what's happening here. And the danger of that is this. There is something wrong with religion when its degree of fidelity depends solely on outside pressures, influences, and leadership then we are Christian only because of our surroundings or because of the expectations of Christian people around us and a lack of genuine internal work of God. Now, please hear my heart. I'm always the one saying that God created the church so that we could come together and mutually encourage each other and use our spiritual gifts to build each other up. And I'm all about living in community. Please Understand that's not, but there does come that point where as we continue to grow and mature in the Lord, I need to have a genuine, internal, real, personal walk with God myself because there may be times in my life where I don't always have another Christian around or I'm not, my circumstances aren't always going to be a certain way or I'm not always going to be able to find a, a group of people to walk that road with me. And and I've got to get to the point where it's real for me and I'm not just living off the spirituality of others. You see, that was the problem in Israel. That, that At that time, the Israelites were living off the, the, the walk of God of Joshua and the walk of God of Othniel and the walk of God of Ehud. And, and God wants to bring his people to a personal, not only relationship with him, but a personal, real walk with him so that If sometimes we're out there by ourselves on our own, it's okay. We're going to be okay because we've got God and we've learned how to do it ourselves a little bit rather than always having to rely on others. In fact, the New Testament talks about this when Paul in the book of Philippians says, guys, in Philippi, work out your own salvation. The the church at Philippi was overly relying on Paul and, and they were constantly like, they couldn't make a move without Paul. And Paul was like, guys, this isn't the way God designed Christianity. God designed Christianity so that each Christian could certainly benefit from other Christians and be encouraged by other Christians, but don't solely have to rely on other Christians or a certain environment or certain surroundings in order to thrive. In fact, it's one of the great themes of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Where here's this young teenage boy and his three friends from Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were plucked up as teenagers 
taken from their homeland, taken away from everything that is familiar to them, everything that's comfortable to them, taken away from their family and their friends and dumped in a foreign land called Babylon. And yet, because each one of those young lads had a personal walk with God, they thrived in Babylon. They, they continued to walk with God and God continued to use them and they continued to grow because they had learned somewhere a long time ago, even probably as a child, how to walk with God to where if circumstances aren't always perfect, if my surroundings aren't always familiar, if I don't always have a comfort zone of people around me, I can still keep on moving forward because I've got everything I need within me and I've learned to do it myself. It's one of the encouraging things about being the teaching pastor of Cornerstone is more and more I'm running into folks at this church who their desire is, Jeff, I want to learn how to study the Bible my, myself. I, it's great that we have you know, teachers at this church and, and all of that, and that's great, and we'll continue to come and learn, but, but, but we want to learn ourselves the rest of the week when we're not able to be in Bible studies and all that, and that's where it's all at. You know, we, we want to teach people how to do it themselves because you're going to get a lot further when you can feed yourself rather than always having to rely on others to feed you. And there's too many folks in our modern day churches that just come and have the mentality that the only feeding they get is when they say, come on Sunday and get fed from some pastor and the rest of the week there's no feeding going on. And then we wonder why people are so spiritually weak and don't have the power in their lives to stand up to the forces that are flying against them all week. It's because they're not being built up. And it's our responsibility individually to build up ourselves. And so we see here, this was a real problem in the nation of Israel. I would just like to encourage you folks to keep on getting involved with Bible studies and, and, and life groups and small churches and men's ministry and women's ministry and all that stuff is great. But get to the point in your life where you can walk alone if you have to with God and continue to move forward because you've gotten to a place through your spiritual growth and spiritual maturity where if everything's just not so and just right and you don't have that support group around you all the time, you can still move forward because you know how to on your own. That wasn't true with Israel. After somebody died or somebody passed on, right back to their old ways. Now we come to the deliverer of Israel at this time. Verse 4, Deborah, the only girl judge, but she was special. She was special because, now think about this, we're in 2009 and even in our country, we still haven't had a woman president yet. Now you're talking about thousands of years ago and you've got a woman Leading Israel? How did that even happen? How could, how could they even allow that to happen in that culture where even thousands of years ago, women were not looked on, you know, in any way? How did that happen? How did that come about? Because she was a leader. Because she had a personal walk with God. And remember, this was in the dark days of Israel. Where you look around and there weren't many people who were wholeheartedly following God. And so she stood out. And can I just say that at this time in Israel's history, there were a lot of wimpy men, spiritually speaking. 
and the men weren't willing to step up and take their leadership, and Deborah was right there and filled that gap. And God used her in a great way. Gals, you can be a leader for God. Don't let anybody tell you that God can't use women as leaders. He can't. Deborah is a biblical example of just what God can do with a gal who is sold out to him. And notice, Deborah was a prophetess. She received revelation from God. And God doesn't reveal himself to people that he can't trust. And so this just begins to show us her character and her depth of walk with God, that here was a gal that God knew he could entrust with his word and with his revelation. But boy, she was, she was a balanced gal too because the Bible says she was also a wife and a mother. And she was leading Israel at that time. And notice verse 5, she would sit under the date palm tree that finally just became known as the date palm tree of Deborah where the Israelites knew that they could find her and have their dispute settled. And if, if there was any judge, as they're called in the judges, that, that patterned more after what we would think of a judge, being more of a judicial uh, person that would decide between situations and all of that, Deborah would more fit that than any other judge. Most of the other judges also had some kind of military uh, part. They, they also had some kind of maybe a spiritual role, if you will, formally in the nation of Israel. But, but here's a gal that God is using even in the darkest days of Israel because she was willing to be used. She was willing to make herself available. And God was using her to be this light in this very dark time in Israel's history. And the thing I like about Deborah too, and I think it's good uh, to remind us of this as far as leadership goes, is she was a leader who made herself accessible. Because notice... If people had a problem and they needed to go to her to try to get the wisdom from God that God was giving to her as she was leading Israel, they knew where to find her. She wasn't hiding. She wasn't difficult to get to. She made herself accessible, which is a challenge to me as a leader to try to make myself as accessible as possible. Yeah, obviously I have to protect my study time. I have to protect the time that I need alone with God in prayer and study hours upon hours each week. But I also need to be with people because you all are the ministry. And without you all and me being with you all in some capacity, there is no ministry. So there needs to be that balance in our lives. And I think she, she is reminding us of that. And, and notice her encouragement here to her military leader, a guy by the name of Barak. She summoned Barak, and she said to him, Is it not true that the Lord God of Israel is commanding you? Go march to Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun, and I will bring Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to you at the Kishon River, along with his chariots and huge army. I will hand him over to you. Now, notice Barak's answer or response. This is the general of the army of Israel. This is a big, strapping guy. And notice what he says. Deborah, if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. And it reminds us again of sort of the problem in nature within the nation of Israel. That even the general of Israel's army, 
didn't feel like having God was enough. That, that, he, that he had to have Deborah. And again, I'm not downplaying the encouragement that Deborah was to him personally. And I understand that. But there comes a point where I've got to be willing to step up, stand up on my own, even if no one will stand with me. And so it again just reminds us of sort of the spiritual bankruptcy in the nation of Israel at this time, that people were overly relying on others. And if it wouldn't be for Deborah, where would the nation of Israel have been? And so Deborah, instead of, you know, sacrificing what God was going to do, she says, okay, I'll go with you. If that's what it's going to take to get you where you need to be so that God can use you and this Israeli army to defeat our enemy, then I'll go with you. And so she relents and she goes. But I want you to notice something about Deborah, and this is why God used her. Because she reminded Barak and the nation of Israel about their source of salvation or deliverance or victory. Notice in verse 6 and 7, she is reminding Barak that it's not going to be Barak and the military might of Israel. First of all, the military might of Israel compared to the military might of Sisera and the Canaanite army was puny. It wasn't going to be a military victory. If God was not going to show up on that battlefield that day, they didn't stand a chance. But she reminds him of that when she says, Is it not true that the Lord God of Israel is commanding you to go? Therefore, go. And does not God say, I will bring Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to you? And I will hand him over to you. So Deborah is even saying, Barak, it's not going to be you. It's not going to be me. It's going to be God that brings our deliverance and brings our salvation from this general and this king who has been oppressing us severely all these years. And I love this in verse 14. I think that verse 14 in chapter 4 may well be the focal point of the chapter. Because she assures Barak with a rhetorical question in verse 14. And she reminds Barak also that God is a warrior who fights for his people. Notice, Deborah said to Barak, verse 14, Spring into action, for this is the day the Lord is handing Sisera over to you. Has not the Lord taken the lead and Barak quickly went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. A couple things about that verse, since I think it's a key verse. First of all, I love the words that she used, spring into action. There are many times, even as Christians, where we sit around, we talk about something, we beat it to death, we discuss it, we have all these good intentions, we re-examine it, we, we, we do... And there's just some times where God has said, go, and we just need to get up and do it. We just need to spring into action. We've got to quit talking about it after a while, and we just need to spring into action and by faith do what God's telling us to do. And again, that was sort of like that little nudge that the general needed from Deborah. Come on, Barak. God goes ahead of you. God's the one that's going to give them into our hand. God has led us to this point. God is the one that's leading us and telling us to go. So let's go. Let's get up and let's go. And so God tonight may be 
working in our lives tonight to a point where weeks, months, maybe he's been speaking to us about doing something. And we've been resisting. We've been making all kinds of excuses. We've been telling him why we can't. We've... And maybe tonight, through the message of Judges chapter 4, God is just speaking and saying, you know what, tonight's the night. Just get up and do it. Whatever it is God is saying to us tonight to do, just spring into action. Quit talking about it. Just get up and obediently follow what the Lord is leading us to do. But I want to come back to this whole thing about God as a warrior who fights for his people because I've been a Christian for 35 years. I've been a pastor for 25 years. And there is a tremendous misconception about God in many circles. Yet one of the aspects of God in the Bible is that he is a warrior. The strength of God's people is not found in a soft, wimpy, graven image. The only real hope of God's afflicted people is a strong Lord. Listen, if I've got something stranglehold around my life, if I've got something strong in my life that needs to be taken care of, I can't call on some weak God to deliver me. i got to know that the God I'm calling on is a God who will fight for me and is strong enough to defeat anything in my life that's coming between me and him. A strong Lord. That's why when you go back and read verses like this, I think it, it, it may hit you a little bit different. For instance, Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is this majestic king? The Lord who is strong and mighty. The Lord who is mighty in battle. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord, which embodies all that he is, is like a strong tower. The righteous person runs to it and is set safely on high. Psalm 46 verse 1. God is our strong refuge. He is truly our helper in times of trouble. I I don't know about you, but... I'm glad my God is almighty. I'm glad my God is strong. I'm glad my God is a warrior who will go to battle with me when I need somebody to go to battle with me. And I know that if God is with me, then who can stand against me? God is a strong warrior. And Deborah is reminding this general, God's going to fight for his people today. This isn't going to be a victory that's going to come about because we were, you know... We had the best military strategy or we had the the best armament or the best weapons or the, you know, the the best warriors. We're going to win because God showed up and fought for his people. And, And you and I can mark it down that if there's anything in our life that is keeping us from God, keeping us from enjoying life as God would have us to, that God will fight for us. And he will want to rid us from anything that's holding us back from being all that he created us to be. You can count on it. He's a strong refuge. He is a strong tower. And you can count on him to supply all the strength that you need for each and every situation in life. Now, though God is clearly the source of salvation, he frequently, as we've seen throughout the book of Judges, uses many different means to bring it about. Othniel, it was because the Spirit of the Lord came on him and made him strong. Ehud was left-handed and God used his uniqueness. Shamgar was this just crazy guy who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And and so God used ox goads and and daggers and just all kinds of things. And, And here in this story, it's no different. For notice in verse 15... 
The Bible says the Lord routed Sisera, all his chariotry and all his army with the edge of the sword. And Sisera jumped out of his chariot and ran away on foot. Why did Sisera abandon his chariot and hoof it from the battle? We're never told. And this is why I tell folks, one of the sort of secrets of studying the Bible and reading the Bible is sometimes the questions that we have, if we just keep reading a little bit further, we'll get the answers to those questions if we just read a little bit further. Because just for a few moments tonight, we're going to jump ahead into chapter 5. Although we're going to be there predominantly next week, and I want to show you something really cool. We can see more clearly, if we move ahead to chapter 5 for a moment, why Sisera jumped out of his chariot and hoofed it from the battlefield. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. It indicates that there was a rainstorm. O Lord, when you departed from Seir, when you marched from Edom's plains, the earth shook, the heavens poured down, the clouds poured down rain. Then look at verse 20. From the sky, the stars fought. From their paths in the heavens, they fought against Sisera. In other words, they're just picturing it. It's like even nature was against the army of the Canaanites and was bringing about their defeat. And the river swelled, overflowed, and flooded the area. Verse 21, the Kishon River carried them off. The river confronted them, the Kishon River. Step on the necks of the strong. So that the chariots, these 900 chariots, iron-rimmed wheels, got stuck in the mire and the muck and the mud. And therefore, God eliminated Sisera's tactical advantage and it went down the drain as Barak's infantry charged down from Mount Tabor. Now, knowing how the Lord delivered his people does not diminish it in the least the fact that it was the Lord who delivered them. In fact, if anything, we marvel all the more as we ponder the precise timing of God. As the psalmist says, he lays the beams of the upper rooms of his palace on the rain clouds. He makes the clouds his chariot and travels along on the wings of the wind. See... Judges is just simply reminding us, can't fight against God. God's got everything in the universe at his disposal. And this mighty army, this army and and this people that had oppressed cruelly the people of Israel, God finally said, enough is enough. I'm now going to defeat them. And they're like, how can they be defeated? They've got 900 chariots. God simply says, I'm just going to make it rain. And that'll make those chariots completely useless. See, God has everything at his disposal. And when God wants to make a way for his people, he can make a way where there is no way. What seems improbable or impossible is not improbable or impossible with God. Looking at this strictly on a human level, we would be going... Wow, this is, this is a sad time. I mean, Israel is in the tank spiritually. This gal, Deborah, man, if it wouldn't be for her, there wouldn't be any talk of God in the country at this point. Our enemy has 900 chariots of iron, and we don't stand a chance. Hello, you've got God on your side. Is that not enough? 
And that's what the people of Israel needed to be reminded of and needed to learn. And sometimes that's what we need to be reminded of. Even as Christians in our day, we look at the circumstances and we look at, at, at the, uh, our, those who are oppressing and those who are causing trouble and, and we begin to magnify all the opposition and go, how can I overcome this? And we, we magnify the things that's got a hold of us and, and it's almost like they become so big that we're not even clearly thinking that, wait a minute, we've got God. And, and these things can't stand a chance against God if we just allow God to work. And that's what the people of Israel needed to be reminded of. As the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we will depend on the Lord our God. Back to Judges chapter 4. Though God is the source of salvation, he frequently uses human instruments to bring his saving help. But he does it in such a way that the instrument reveals rather than obscures God as the giver of salvation. So I want to go back now for a minute and pick up the story back in Judges chapter 4 verse 9. Where Deborah reminds Barak, yes, I will go with you, but you will not gain fame on the expedition you are undertaking. For the Lord will turn Sisera over to a woman. And that phrase, the Lord will turn Sisera over to a woman. First of all, she's not talking about herself. We're going to get to this gal in a minute. and She's an amazing gal. Her name is J.L. But the Lord will turn Sisera over to a woman is in the emphatic position in the Hebrew. Meaning it's the most important thing that God wants to stand out in this verse. Why? Because it's actually a prophecy. That's given by Deborah the prophetess before anything happened. Therefore, no one could say after the fact, oh, it just happened to turn out that way. So that when it occurs, there can be no doubt that it is God who did it. And that Sisera will fall by the hand of a woman would seem to be totally out of the realm of possibility. It shatters our human conventions about the very things that should happen and the way that they should happen. Almost as much as the Arizona Cardinals being in the Super Bowl. (laughs) Sorry, I just had to throw that in. But by this unexpected and strange twist, God is leaving his mark on this occasion. It is a clear token to the people of God that I'm at work. I've got this all figured out. Sisera, the mighty general of the Canaanite army, the one who has been oppressing Israel for 20 years, that they stood no chance with. The irony that a woman is going to defeat this guy? Come on. But as I said tonight, as we started out, this is ladies' night in the mind. Because not only is Deborah being used to the Lord, but I want to introduce you to one of the incredible ladies in Scripture. Her name is... JL. Now, before we do that, let me also go back to this point. As God displays his glory in delivering his people, no warrior in Israel should obscure that glory. So when Deborah tells Barak in verse 9 that the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, we should be reminded it is God who brings victory and we should not care which human instrument seems to shine the most. Can I just stop there for a second? 
because we live in a culture, even in our Christianity, where I hate to say it, but we have, I call them Christian celebrities. Human instruments that are put up on a pedestal that I think only God deserves to be there. And we've got to realize that they're just instruments. It is God who's doing it all. And if people don't begin to reflect the glory to God and give him the glory, don't be surprised if you just stop hearing about those people after a while. Because the Bible says God will share his glory with no one. And if human beings begin to take the glory that only God deserves, he will remove them from their position of influence. And he will simply replace them with someone else. It's not the human instrument that should get the glory. It's the God behind it all that should get the glory. And that's why I love Deborah. She said, now, Barak, if you go and you win this great battle, you can't ride back into, you know, Israel going, look at me, you know. No, it's going to be, look at what God has done. Now, before we share this great story of JL, I want you to look at verse 11 for a moment. If you doubt that God cares about the details, the minutia of our lives, here's another example. I mean, there's plenty of other examples. Jesus said, God knows when a sparrow falls from a tree. He he knows details. But there are many times where we're going through life and we're so struggling with something and and we, you know, begin to doubt and and, and lose our faith and whatever. And we don't think God cares, that he notices, that he knows what's going on. And God is very much into the details. And I want you to see this tonight, hopefully as an encouragement to you, that maybe right now you don't think God is involved in the very minutia of your life and knows every intimate detail. But I want you to know tonight, based upon this passage of Scripture, that our God is very much involved when he delivers and and brings salvation and all of that, that he has to be involved with the details. Look at verse 11. Now, Heber... The Canaanite had moved away from the Kenites. And you and I would just say as we read that verse and kept on moving, who cares about that? So some unknown metal worker pulls up stakes and moves north. So what? Neither the Jerusalem Gazette or the Hazor Herald thought the item noteworthy. Here is a mere puny detail, a dry insertion into an otherwise interesting story. But verse 11 points to the providence of God. Because certainly it appears to be nothing but a piece of geographical trivia to have Heber's change of address inserted into this story. Nevertheless, we will soon discover that the woman whom God was going to deliver Sisera into her hand was Heber's wife. And that she was going to have to be precisely where she needed to be when Israel's oppressor ditched his chariot and ran for his life. Which reminds us that not even Heber's U-Haul was outside of God's plan. And a God like that should surely be praised. That God said, uh... I need JL up here because Sarah's going to ditch his chariot and run down there. And I need them to meet. So Heber, you need to move up there. And probably at the time, Heber might have even been questioning, why do I have to move up there? I'm moving away from my people. 
I, I don't get the move. I don't understand it all. And, and that's why we've got to be connected to God. Because as I, I share in all my Bible studies, God is the only one that can see the big picture. He's the only one that can see the 90% of the iceberg that's underneath the surface where you and I as human beings can only observe the 10% of the iceberg above the surface. And if we're only making decisions and choices and being led by what we see, which is a very small amount, and we're not relying on God that can see it all, then we're going to miss an awful lot. And, and, and there are times, just like maybe in this instance, where we're wondering, God, what's up? I don't get it because God hasn't maybe filled us in on all the whys. He just wants us to trust and to live by faith and know that there's a reason why, Heber, I want you to move up there. A very good reason. And God wants to do the same thing in our lives. I've said for years, we have to get to a point in our walk with God where we are willing to follow a God we don't always understand. If I understood everything God did, I'd be God and I will never be God and you will never be God and no one ever will be God. And we've just got to get to the point where we trust and we put our faith in a God that we won't always understand, but we know. And we've got to come to that conviction that he does not make a mistake, that he is all wise, that he will never do anything that is, you know, outside of his character and that he's a good God. Do we really believe that? So I notice the story. Verse 17, let's pick it up there. So Sarah Sarah ran away on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Eber the Kenite. For King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Eber the Kenite Kenite had made a peace treaty. Jael came out to welcome Sarah. She said to him, stop and rest, my lord. Stop and rest with me. Don't be afraid. So Sarah stopped to rest in her tent and she put a blanket over him. He said to her, give me a little water to drink because I'm thirsty. She opened a goatskin container of milk and gave him some milk to drink. And then she covered him up again. This guy's tired. Milk and getting him warm. He's gone. He says to her, verse 20, stand watch at the entrance to the tent. If anyone comes along and asks you, is there a man here? Say, no. And he was out. Then Jael, wife of Eber, took a tent peg in one hand and a hammer in the other. She crept up on him, drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground while he was asleep from exhaustion, and he died. Say, wow. There's a gal for you. Now, remember, when we started our study of Judges, I I said, look, Judges is one of those books that's going to create some questions and going to bring some tension. I get that. And it's stories like this why some people just stay away from the Old Testament, which I think is just wrong. God gave us the Old Testament to study and to read. And the New Testament tells us if we stay away from the Old Testament, we're going to miss a lot of what God has for us. Romans 15, 4 says that. The Old Testament should be read and studied. But when you come to a story like this, you're going, wow. You mean God meant for that to happen? For for this gal to put a tent peg through this general's head and drive it into the 
wow, that, that seems pretty cruel, pretty yucky. I agree. But here's something that we have to keep in mind. First of all, I want to say this. Here's another way God is in the details. J.L. was a Bedouin. And among the Bedouins, even to this day in the Middle East, pitching the tent and striking camp was the woman's duty. So that J.L. would not be awkward with the hammer. You see... As we talked about with Ehud and Othniel and Shamgar, God was going to use whatever was already in their hands. God was going to use and call upon whatever they already had some skills with and what already they had some ability with and that they just needed to trust and put that in. And it was no accident that J.L. had probably taken up a, or taken down a tent and put up a tent Hundreds, if not thousands of times. And if anybody knew how to drive a tent peg effectively, it was JL. But let's remember something. Let's remember as we go back to Judges 4.3 that Sisera had cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years. And one of the problems when we in our modern society comes to the Old Testament, one of the things we say is, It's so violent. I can't believe when we think about that. that, Because we are living in an age that is more violent. And has more violence everywhere we look. And more violence on television. And more violent movies. And and yet somehow as Christians, we look at the Old Testament and go, Oh, I'm going to stay away from that. It's too violent. Really? Okay. But the other thing is this. We've got to remember... That we cry out for God to be a God of justice. A God who's going to square things up. A God who's going to make things right. And then when God chooses to do that and does it the way he wants to, then we complain of how he did it. And we've got to remember something. If you go back in history and you study the Canaanite people, as we even read about in Psalm 106, they were probably the cruelest people, or one of the cruelest people, groups of people that ever lived. As as we already read in Psalm 106, they used sexual immorality as part of their religion. Uh, They committed child sacrifice to their idols. They raped and were degrading of women. In fact, let me direct your attention back over to chapter 5 for a moment. And notice I'm going to pick it up in verse 28 where... It's a picture of Sisera's mother looking through a window and crying out through the lattice. Why is his chariot so slow to return? Why are the hoofbeats of his chariot horses delayed? And the wisest of her ladies answers. Indeed, she even thinks to herself, no doubt they are gathering and dividing the plunder. And notice, a girl or two for each man to rape. So Sisera is also grabbing up probably the the clothes of the women that he's raping and going to bring them back as booty. Two pieces of colorful embroidered cloth for the neck of the plunderer. And God had finally had enough. God finally said, enough of children dying, enough of children abuse, enough of women being raped and cruelly abused, enough. 
I have given the Canaanites hundreds of years to repent. I have given them my prophets. I have given them my word. And they have hard-heartedly been stubborn and said, no, God, we will continue to worship our idols. We will continue to kill our children and murder our children. We will continue to practice sexual immorality. We will thumb our nose at you. We will rape the Israelite women and you can't do anything about it. And finally, God said, enough. Can I just tell you, we might not like the way God goes about his justice But I'm glad that I know that one day God is going to make all things right. And he is a God of justice. No, he's not going to completely destroy the world by a flood like he did in Noah's day. But the Bible says if God is not going to make things right here and now, that you and I as Christians do have the hope that one day things will be made right and those who are oppressing and those who are murdering and those who are cruelly treating others and, and, and abusing and all of that, it's going to be dealt with one day. Jesus even taught us to pray that. In the prayer, in the Gospels, when he says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't believe that you and I then sincerely can pray that prayer if we do not trust in the God of the Bible to mete out his justice as he sees fit. Yeah, we might not agree with the way he goes about it. That's where our faith has got to come. The only other alternative is there will never be justice. And that there will never be sometimes an answer to the crimes and cruelty that's committed in the world. And I don't like that answer either. So God delivered to Sarah and King Jabin into the hand of Israel. In fact, as we close tonight, go back quickly to Judges chapter 4. We pick it up. In verse 22, now Barak was chasing Sisera. Jael went out to welcome him. She said to him, come here and I will show you the man you are searching for. He went with her into the tent and there he saw Sisera sprawled out dead with a tent peg in his temple. That day, God humiliated King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. Israel's power continued to overwhelm King Jabin of Canaan until they did away with him. And God released Israel, after 20 years from the cruel oppression of the Canaanites. As we close tonight, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 62. I close with this psalm. As we study the book of Judges, one of the themes that we are reminded of is that our God is a God who delivers. He's a God who saves. He's a God who rescues. And Psalm 62 is reminding us of that as it was reminded of us again how God uses rainstorms, how God uses JL and Deborah and maybe things that we don't expect, but it is ultimately God behind it all. I love Psalm 62. The psalmist writes, For God alone I patiently wait. He is the one who delivers me. He alone is my protector and deliverer. He is my refuge. I will not be upended. How long will you threaten a man? All of you are murderers, as dangerous as a leaning wall or an unstable fence. 
They spend all their time planning how to bring him down. They love to use deceit. They pronounce blessings with their mouths, but inwardly they utter curses. Patiently wait for God alone, my soul, for he is the one who gives me confidence. He alone is my protector and deliverer. He is my refuge. I will not be upended. God delivers me and exalts me. God is my strong protector and my shelter. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our shelter. Men are nothing but a mere breath. Human beings are unreliable. When they are weighed in the scales, all of them together are lighter than air. Do not trust in what you gain by oppression. Do not put false confidence in what you gain by robbery. If wealth increases, do not become attached to it. God has declared one principle, two principles I have heard. God is strong. And you, O Lord, demonstrate loyal love, for you repay men for what they do. Folks, as you leave here tonight, keep those verses ringing in your ears. God is strong, and he will demonstrate his loyal love to you. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for these stories out of the Old Testament. In some ways, they may trouble us. In some ways... They may encourage us. Lord, my ultimate goal in sharing the book of Judges with the folks of Cornerstone is that you would be glorified. You would be lifted up. That you would be seen as a God who is strong. A God who who can deliver us and rescue us from whatever is in our lives that's, that's bringing us down and degrading us. And God, you are a God we can always count on. As the psalmist says, even the best of men are men. And they can prove unreliable. But God, you are never unreliable. You are always faithful to your word. And help us to put our trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. See you next week. Judges chapter 5.